our ministers here at the Beaufort Church of Christ engaging in a, in a conversation about the text. And, and tonight we have the wonderful opportunity to introduce a new study to you. And tonight's study is going to uh, uh, begin a series of lessons that will take about uh, seven weeks. And it's going to be a study of the seven letters in the book of Revelation. Uh, it will encompass just Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but the seven letters that Jesus wrote through the Apostle John to the seven churches of Asia. That's going to be our focus for the next several weeks through the course of this summer. And we hope you'll uh, join us throughout the entirety of it as we look at these letters uh, and, and study them. Uh, we're going to kick off uh, with this question, uh, with this consideration of uh, why is it important or why is it beneficial for us to study these seven letters specifically? You know, without uh, giving any context of what's going on in the book of Revelation, if you haven't done much Bible study in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation is a very difficult book. It's a difficult book for us to understand in our 21st century context. Uh, but what's amazing about this part of the book of Revelation uh, is this is simply Jesus Christ talking to different congregations throughout Asia Minor. And so... What I think what's amazing about these different letters is just the thought of it being Jesus speaking past the Gospels, right? Because when we look at the New Testament, uh, when you look over the New Testament, it's very obvious that Jesus, Jesus has a, a very strong influence throughout the Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and it's His good news, it's, it's Him proclaiming uh, His news, it's Him proclaiming things and teaching things and doing things and, and then you come to the book of Acts. And though his influence uh, continues through the apostles, after the Gospels, he handed the kingdom over to the apostles. After, the, a, after he ascended, he handed the kingdom over. And so his influence continued because they were preaching his news still. But we don't hear from Jesus himself that often after the Gospels end. And so what's... what's, what's Amazing about these letters is we hear from Jesus again. We hear from Jesus throughout uh, some of the epistles, like when he talks to Paul in the book of Acts. But for the most part, we don't hear from Jesus again after the Gospels, except for right here in the book of Revelation. Uh, and I think it's powerful. It's, it's powerful to think about Jesus talking to these different congregations. Him sending a message to these different congregations. Uh, because just the same as it is today, there were people back then that said Jesus' words held more weight than the words of Paul or Peter or John. And so the same people that say that today where basically, I only want to know what Jesus said. I, I only want to know what's in red. I, I, I don't care about what Paul said. By the way, that thought is wrong. G, uh, Paul says, I imitate Christ. Uh, they were all inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there were people then, and there are people now, that gave Jesus' words more weight than they would Paul or some of the other apostles. So here, they cannot run from the fact that Jesus is giving them a tongue lashing at times. Jesus is giving them encouragement at times throughout these letters. And so I think it's very powerful to look at them and to think about what is being said. But more importantly, what's amazing to me is to think, which church are we? 
as we look throughout the different seven churches, it's, it's a very powerful thing to think about what church written about in the book of Revelation is most like Buford Church. What, what correlation, what comparison, what challenge could Jesus be saying to these churches way back then, but could also say to us tonight and us as we study it? So I think it's very beneficial for us to look at these letters. It's very beneficial for us to think about as if Jesus is talking to us. So why should we study the seven letters in the book of Revelation? It's because it's easier than anything else in the book of Revelation. <laughs> I'm kidding. That was a joke. No, it's great. I think, I mean, Ben pretty much said it all there in the sense that the, the first, this, this section in, in Revelation, it really invites us to, to, it kind of shows us a few different things. One, it shows us exactly what, what Christ values in a church. And this is, we're able to look at Christ going from one congregation to another, saying, okay, what does he admire here? What, what is he upset? What is he disappointed? And what does he hate? Because he uses that terminology even in the, in the letter to Ephesus that we're reading tonight. And so it, that opens the door and it'll just a little bit more and for us to understand, okay, well, how does Christ see these things? And isn't it amazing when we get a snapshot or we get, we get invited into the mind of Christ for a moment, we get to see, okay, this is how God analyzes this congregation. This is how God values this, this group of people. And so the, the, the letters to the seven churches here invites us, gives us this amazing opportunity to see how God sees. And so I think that's a, that's a blessing for us, all being inside of a congregation, all being members of his body. We now have a better idea of what he's looking for and what he is what he's hoping for and what he's hoping not to see, right? So not only do we get to see how valuable it is to him, but also we get to see how serious he takes this, right? We are surrounded in a culture that, that tells us to find our own truth and to seek out our own understanding and to kind of pave our own way there. And then Christ here multiple times to the seven in different letters says, okay, if you don't straighten up, I'll, I will remove your lampstand. He is calling them to a standard and saying, if you don't meet this standard, there will be consequences. And so not only do we see the value Christ puts on the, uh, the rights and wrongs of how a church and how a Christian should look, but also just how serious he takes when the wrongs are present. And I love that in each opportunity he is saying, if you don't straighten up. To none of these congregations saying, okay, I'm on the way right now to remove this lampstand. He gives the, he's pleading with them to repent. He's pleading with them to return back to their first love before that action's having to be taken. And so I think that's, that's an interesting, interesting thing we get to pick up on in these seven letters. It's like, okay, what does he value? How serious does he take it? And then also, kind of like Ben said, this just invites us to, to look inwardly at ourselves. There's nothing new under the sun, right? We spent a lot of time talking about that in Ecclesiastes a few studies ago. What these seven congregations are, are dealing with, and what you could say what the other congregations in the New Testament, I, I think of the Church of Corinth, the problems that they were facing and the problems that we're, we're, we're going to be talking about tonight still happen here and among our congregations in the Brotherhood and outside of that all around the world today. And so it's just we have this blessing to, to see, okay, this is how this church handled this. This is, the, this is how Christ addressed this issue and what that invites us to do is say, okay, this is a congregational aspect, but let's bring it down on a more individual level. And I don't want to get into our topic tonight, but as we go through the letters, we say, okay, well, this is how this church should handle it. Is this congregation handling it? But how about J. Hall? If Christ was to walk among the lampstands, if he was to walk into my life and to write me a letter, what things would he admire? 
What things would he be upset about? And I, I think it's a blessing that we get to see certain comments he would make in some of our lives. So I think there's a lot to take away from letters written 2,000 years ago can directly apply to us tonight. Absolutely, and the, the one thing, I, both, both of what you said is fantastic. The one thing I would add is also, it's a reminder that there's no cookie-cutter church. There's, there's no, there's no uh, um, congregation here that's exactly like the next congregation mentioned or anything like that. And, and it's also fascinating because we're dealing with churches or we're, we're reading about churches that deal with a lot of, the, as Jay's alluding to, deal with a lot of the same issues that exist today, but also are dealing with a culture and a context in which they're surviving that, that we can relate to. Um, we, we'll probably talk about this more in a minute, but they're dealing with incredible persecution during this time frame. Some churches more so than others, but they're, they're living in a society that doesn't much care for them and doesn't really care for their belief system and doesn't really care about their faith. And so it's, it's interesting because you can find a lot of encouragement and strength from reading about churches, even this long ago, that deal with the same circumstances that we deal with today and the same societal context that we deal with today. And I think that also stands out. And so whether we're talking about the fact that these are the words of Jesus, um, that, that we see how serious Jesus took, thing, took these matters and, and we see what God looks at when he looks at the church or whether we're considering the fact that this is a very similar context and circumstance as to what we experience today. All of that compounded together makes these seven letters worth reading and worth studying. And I just lost where I was going with the end of that. But it's worth studying. That's Amen. our point. Amen. So, what I want to do uh, real quick is we're going to read the, the first letter. Uh, it starts here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 and goes through verse 7, and then we'll begin our study of this letter tonight. Uh, this first letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus. So, beginning in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now before we dive too far into the text, let me ask you this. Is there any background information uh, regarding these seven churches or in general or Ephesus in particular that you'd like to throw out there before we start looking at their letter? You know, I think it's important to remember where Ephesus is and how, what type of city this is looking like in this culture or at this time in history. You know, Ephesus, I think we could compare to a lot of times. It's a port city. It's, it's a metropolis at this point, and, it, and it's kind of rise and fall. And, and I think kind of maybe to put it in our perspective now, it, this would be almost like a New York or an L.A. type thing. Not only is it a massive city when it comes to population, not only is it a huge city of transportation, people are, it's a port coming in and out and everything, but it also kind of stands for some of the, 
the state of the pagan culture at that moment. And I think anytime you study anything about Ephesus, one of the first things that's going to come up in your studies is that Temple of Diana. And that's one of the seven wonders there. You've got this massive temple that's laid out, the 127 pillars, right? It's almost three times the size of the Parthenon. And, uh, and that was at the center of Ephesus. I mean, this is the epicenter of pagan worship and everything that goes, in, goes into that. And so I think that's just an important note to remember. As we talk about this congregation, this congregation is set right inside of L.A., right? It's set, it's set, this, this congregation is set right inside of the metropolises of New York City. So we see how grand that is, but we also kind of get an idea of the culture of the people around this, this group of Christians that they're living within. So I think that, that, that helps me put myself yeah. in the shoes of Church of Ephesus. I'd also think the one thing that's unique about Ephesus is there, of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, it's the one we know the most about. Mm-hmm. Because you, you can go to the book of Acts and you can read how on Paul's second missionary journey, he, he goes and uh, establishes a congregation there. He deals with some incredible persecution in Ephesus and actually gets run out of town. Uh, he will return during his uh, third missionary journey. He will... Um, on his final trip to Jerusalem, he will uh, summon the elders of the congregation in Ephesus to meet with him, and he'll offer words of encouragement. He'll give them some instruction. Uh, we have a letter written by Paul to this congregation. And this is the place where Paul spent in one location the longest period of time during his missionary journeys. Three years he was stationed in Ephesus, and from those, during those three years, he ventured out into all the countryside around Ephesus, which would probably include many of these congregations, if not all of them, and it became a base of operations for him for three years. So there's a lot, uh, a lot of information about Ephesus in the New Testament, and, and it's really the only one of these seven churches that we have that much information about. And if you read the, the letter to, to Ephesus, you'll see some uh, mirroring of the very things that will get talked about in this letter to, from, from Jesus to that congregation. So... We have a lot of information. Ephesus is a congregation we can be well, well acquainted with because of how it's, of its mentioning in other texts uh, of the New Testament. So let's consider this. One thing that stands out in all of these letters is that all of them include a reference to the vision that, of Jesus back in the first chapter. I'm not going to re- read the entirety of that, but if you look, you'll see a reference to Jesus in verse number... Uh, in, in, Chapter 2 and verse um, 1. It says, These are the, it says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you go back to chapter 1 of Revelation and you look at verse 13 uh, through 16, I believe it is, there's a vision of Jesus that John receives, and some of this language is borrowed from that very vision. What is it? Why... Why is the, this letter, or what do you think is significant about the fact that when uh, Jesus writes this letter, he, he hearkens back to the image of him as one holding the seven stars in his right hand and walking among the seven golden lampstands? What does that communicate, do you think? You know, the Jesus that we, we see in the Gospels has all of the limitations of a human being at the same time that he is deity. Right? We, we, we study that and we, we wrestle with that and we try to figure that out and we try to understand how that could possibly be. How can someone be fully man and fully God at the same time? And what's powerful about the book of Revelation and about what he says in these letters is we're no longer talking to someone 
And we're no longer reading from someone that has those limits. We're no longer reading about the man who had nowhere to lay his head. We're, we're now hearing from the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We're hearing from the Great I Am, the Prince of Peace, the name that is above all names, the, the person that is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, fully God in heaven above. That's who we're listening to when we look at this. And not to say that he wasn't as powerful or wasn't as kingly or wasn't as uh, whatever you want to say when he was on earth, but now we, we, we are listening to the fully uh, fulfilled Christ from heaven above that no longer has the limits of a man. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is he's letting them know who, he, who they are reading from. They're reading from the man that holds the stars in his right hand. The, 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 the God of the universe is, is Him. He is God. And when He says these things to the churches, they better listen. Because they're not talking to just anybody. They're talking to God Himself. They're talking to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and He's trying to let them know that right up front. I'm the one that holds the stars in my hand. I'm the one that walks among the lampstands. And so, there's actually some larger context going on, perhaps. Uh, scholars uh, have noted that Domitian, who was the emperor at the time that this was written, and don't argue with me, I'm just kidding. Uh, there's a lot of uh, question and a lot of debate on when this was written and who was emperor and at what time this was, but I believe it was Domitian in the 90s AD. And so, Domitian at the time had put out a coin, uh, <clears throat> a currency, that had his son holding stars, holding the constellations in his hand. And what Domitian was trying to say was, my family controls even the universe, the stars around. And so perhaps, and scholars have said, perhaps Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I know there's this guy right now that says he holds the stars in his hands, but no, 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 it's me. I, I am the one that holds the stars in my hands. I am the one that controls all things. And then the walking among the lampstands, what the power of that is, the lampstands representing these churches that we're going to be reading about. He's letting them know up front, listen, I know. I know what's going on. I am walking in, I am walking out, I am walking around, I am all up in these different churches. I know what is going on. I know what is being said. I know what is being done. And I know what is falling by the wayside. And so when I talk, there's a weight to it. Because I know what's been going on. I've been watching. I've been observing. And now it's time for you to know what I've seen. It's time for you to, to, to hear what I have witnessed. Maybe you have become blind to these things. And it's time for me to tell you what I've seen. And so I think ultimately the beginning of this is just Jesus showing and reminding them of his power, of his knowledge, of who he is, and letting them know this isn't a letter that you can ignore. This isn't something you can leave on read, right? This, this, this isn't something that you just can not pay attention to and just go and live your life. This is something that you must pay attention to right now because I am Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. I think you hit it on the head there, uh, Ben. And uh, let's move on to our next observation here, or next question. 
When we look at the text, one thing that happens in most of these letters is that Jesus will commend the congregation for something. And if you look in Revelation chapter 2, particularly at verse 2, uh, you'll see his commendation, his, what he finds praiseworthy and, and, and worth mentioning about the church in Ephesus. Uh, beginning in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. And then if you go down to verse 6, He'll even commend them for this. You hate the work, works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, what I find interesting is that Jesus is praising this congregation because it's a sound church. This is a church that you can go to and trust that what's taught in that congregation is faithful, truthful, and biblically accurate. Jesus is commending the church in Ephesus for its defense of the truth and for its, uh, its willingness to expose false teaching. This is a church that for all intents and purposes is sound. And that's what Jesus is commending them for. Guys, what else would you like to add on the commendation side of, of the church in Ephesus? The only thing I was going to say here is that a lot of these things they are easily observed. These are all actions. You talk about the deeds and your toil and perseverance. They think they're not, they're rooting out the false teachers. So this is a congregation, a lot like you said, Kyle, that when you show up, maybe you're on vacation, right? And you show up to a congregation and you walk in, you go, I like these bulletin boards, right? I like these announcements. I like what's going on here. The bulletin is showing me what's going on. And you can observe as you walk in, as you meet people, it's warm, it's, it's welcoming as you go through. This is a congregation that as people are traveling through Ephesus on their, on their way to another town, they can meet here and they can realize, okay, this is a sound congregation, right? And so I think Christ is talking about here, and, and, I, and I bring this up now, I bring this up now so I can touch on it later, on the outward appearances is very well received, and they are doing a very good job, and that is worth commending by far. Yeah, and uh, so the only thing I would add is they're just further thinking about this. They have the outward appearance. They... They stand for the truth, and it's evident, and they, they are fervent about the truth, and they know the truth, right? This isn't a congregation that is spiritually illiterate. This is a congregation that knows the truth, practices the truth, has committed the truth to the heart. You know, they're, they're a congregation that has, 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with meekness and fear. That's, that, that's this congregation, this Ephesus. They, they have done that. They have searched the Scriptures daily to see if it is so, right? They, they have done all the different things that Paul and, and some of the other apostles instruct them to do. And so, as Jesus does here, He commends them for that. He commends them for this knowledge, this committing to the truth and understanding the further context of what time period this was written in. They had to stand for the truth. Persecution was coming. There were different things that were attacking the church, different false teachings were coming throughout, like the Nicolaitans here in verse 6. So they had to stand for the truth, and ultimately, this persecution and this false teaching and these different things that this church had to face, it pulled out the best in them when it comes to practicing the truth. But what we're going to find out, it also pulled out the worst in them. 
Yeah, I think one thing I, to add with that, to add with that is something we can find with Ephesus is that they're a congregation that when they are warned about something, when they're told about something, that they answer and prepare for that. Because you can go to Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, and this is the very, the thing that Christ is saying, you guys have done really good at, is the very thing that Paul would, would say, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember. And then you had this great you know, period of time between the letter of Ephesus has been written to now Revelation here where Christ is you know, walking among them, and being able to, among them and, and being able to say, you've done a really good job at doing that. And so I think this is a, just another layer of something we can compliment, compliment them on is that once they received their warning, they heeded it. And maybe that seems like a simple thing, but how many times have we not done that, right? How many yeah. times have I not done that when someone says, okay, Jay, you need to prepare for this, or you need to do this, right? Or, Jay, you really need to strengthen that up, or this congregation should really be getting better at, you know, fill in the blank. And then years go on, and we still haven't really fixed that issue, right? And so I think that's another layer of the, the compliment here is that Christ is saying, you were warned about it, you know it was coming, and you've done an excellent job with it. And now, as Ben was setting us up for, we not only have a commendation for this congregation from Jesus, but we also have a criticism, which is something you'll find in several of the letters as well. And if you look at verse um, 4 and 5, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what is it that this congregation is being criticized for? We, we know this is the ch church that left its first love, but, but what does that mean? Some will contend that it means that, uh, that um, they don't love other people as much as they used to. That it's a failure to uh, fulfill the second part of the greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself. But some will also contend that it's, they've left their love of Christ, that they've reduced their love uh, of, of Him, and they're not as passionate for Him as they used to be. There, there could be multiple possible answers to that, and maybe one of these guys wants to get more definitive. But there's a problem, there's a problem here with a lack of love, that's for sure. And whether it's love directed towards God or love directed towards man or all of the above, it's a failure on their part. Because if you think about the expectations of the church when it comes to love in particular, it's the identifying mark of Christians. Uh, uh, Jesus told us in, in John chapter 13 that we will be known as his disciples by our love. We know, we know that Scripture talks about love in the, in the context of being uh, the fulfillment of the law in Romans chapter 13. Love is this uh, essential aspect of Christian living. And whatever way in which it's failing in Ephesus, it's detrimental. Because a, a lack of love is, is a fatal disease, if you will. And so maybe it's just their excitement and passion for the kingdom. Maybe it's their their uh, treatment of other people. Maybe it's their zeal for Christ. It could be any or all of the above, but they are lacking in this one crucial element that you can't lack in and be a Christian. Ahead, so when we, when we think about this uh, criticism, 
you can't have, in my opinion, more of a stark contrast in the pump up to the tear down than what happens with the church in Ephesus. Uh, in Ephesus, if you if you read verses two and three, and, and you think about the implications of that church, you're like, wow, what a church. But like Jay is, was alluding to earlier, there's more going on. Uh, it's great for them to defend the truth. It's, it's great for them to be patient and not be able to bear evil and to test all the false teachers and to persevere and to have patience and to labor and to not become weary and all those different things that are said about the church in Ephesus. But down to the heart of it, is what really matters to Jesus and is why they're doing it. Like I was saying, this persecution, these challenges, this false teaching, it pulled out the very best in their knowledge of God's Word, in their ability to defend the truth. But it pulled out the very worst when it came to their hearts and why they did it. And I I think it's important to understand that it's, it's possible to get so caught up in defending the truth that you lose sight of who you're defending it for or why you are defending it or what you are defending exactly. And apparently, evidently, the church in Ephesus was no longer defending it for the cause of Christ. They were defending it for their own purposes. They were defending it for their own reasons and for their own uh, benefit or their own gain evidently because that's exactly what Jesus says to them and ultimately what do we learn from this is this is a very serious criticism because what Jesus says in verse 5 he says remember therefore where you have fallen from He's calling them back to remember what they used to be about. They used to be about love. They used to be about grace. They used to be about compassion. They used to be about saving souls. They used to be about loving their neighbors as themselves. They used to be about serving one another. And now, all they care about is tearing everyone else apart. And we see that every day. There are congregations, there are people in this congregation. Ooh, there's the eyes. There are people in this congregation that know the truth. They have committed the truth to their heart. They have committed the truth to their life. And, and they, have, they have learned the truth. They have committed the truth. They have practiced truth. And they have spoken the truth. But they didn't do an ounce of it in love. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. May we grow into all things, into him that our head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love, that's what Christ called them to do. That's what Paul called them to do. That's what God's word tells us to do. We talk, I mentioned 1 Peter 3, 3 and verse 15. has answer for everything, do all these things, but do it with gentleness and respect. And so the, the, the criticism here is, yes, throughout this persecution, throughout these challenges and these false teachers, You have stood firm on the truth. But in the process, you've learned to hate people. You've learned to hate people around you. You're not doing it in love anymore. And it goes back to what we were talking about in our last series of the seven things that God hates, seven that are abomination to Him. And our our main takeaway was, if God hates these things, 
then we better hate them too. And that's the church in Ephesus. They hated the things that God hates, and that is to be committed, commended. But at the same time, in our lesson last series, we said we need to love the sinner and hate the sin. And I think the church in Ephesus got those wires crossed and started hating the sinner and hating the sin. And so I think that's the importance of this criticism that we see in the church in Ephesus is the question being, what balance have we striked or struck or whatever the right grammar is? What balance have I found in this in my life? Is the balance right? Or am I so caught up in the truth that I have no more love? I've forgotten my first love. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman we talked about a couple weeks ago, God is desiring those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we see congregations all the time that are focused on the spirit, focused on the love, and focused on the feelings, and focused on the emotion to the point that they abandon the truth. But we also see all the time congregations that are so focused on the truth, so focused on having a defense, so focused on doing things right, that they lost the spirit and the love a long time ago. And so I think right here with this first church, there is so much that we need to say, we need to break down. You know, I think it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what this looks like for the Church of Ephesus because all we have is this context that they left, they've lost, yet you have, they have left their first love, and then, and then in verse 5, and they stopped doing the deeds they did at first. So we don't know what those deeds were, and we don't know what this, what this looks like for them. So I think it's hard maybe to pinpoint and say, okay, they were doing the right things, they were doing them with the wrong motives or whatnot, but we know what this looks like in a relationship, right? We, we see, we know of, Couples who know of relationships that make it through a honeymoon phase and are, you know, they're very passionate and, and serving each other and showing love to one another, and then that quickly breaks down to, okay, well, I have to go get the groceries because that's just what I, I need to do, right? Well, I need to do a little extra on my end to clean this or do that because that's just what I need to do, right? So maybe the actions are still being done for a somewhat right reason, but the love on the other side is just not there. And so and I think that can be a, very applicable to all of us a lot of times with our relationship with God. A lot of times, maybe we come to Sunday night service because we just know it's the right thing to do, right? And that's a good motive. To, to, okay, I need to do this because it's right. That's a good motive. But a lot of us sometimes can lose this desire to be here on Sunday night or the, the excitement of walking in these doors, the joy of seeing our brothers and sisters. And so I think that can be another aspect of possibly what some of their first, leaving the first love actions could be like um, here at the Church of Ephesus. But they're also stopping doing certain deeds. We don't know what those deeds are. But in this kind, of, um, this kind of downgrade of losing their first love, they've also cooled off from doing certain deeds for, for Christ, doing certain deeds for the community, doing certain important deeds that shows evidence that they have lost their first love here. So even it's hard to pinpoint. We know what that looks like, right? Because we've maybe experienced that in our own lives. A, a new friendship, a new relationship. We've seen it in our life. We've seen it in other relationships, right? We've seen it in other congregations. We have a church plant that it strikes out. And they're going to go, or a new ministry, right? And we're going to do 
So we're like, okay, a good example is this go and do ministry we got off last year, right? We were so passionate. We were so excited about it. We're going to pour all of our resources into it. We're going to get the whole congregation involved. And one of our fears of the ministry and leadership altogether was we can't let 2022 be less. We can't let this fire that's, that's burning so bright right now lose some of its passion. And that's one of the reasons that drove us to make 2022 more, so to, to kind of drive this not losing that first love of go and do ministry. And so I think that can be easily seen on a congregational level when it comes to what the Church of Ephesus was looking, you know, what, what they were doing what they weren't, or what they weren't doing, but also very much on our first level, right? A lot of us have been Christians for a long time. Um, I hit a point a couple of years ago where I'd been, and I, y'all are gonna, a lot of y'all are going to scoff at this, but it was like, oof, moment for me where I'd been a Christian longer than my whole youth group had been alive. I thought, okay, all right. That's different, right? And so we've talk, I've, I've thought through that and everything, and I think about some of the times I see some of the students going to camp for the first time, or, or you see that joy of coming out of the water for the first time. So I'm blessed that in my line of work that I get to see that first love a lot, and I get to witness what that, that is like. And that encourages me to see what that first love is, how, how it is experienced when their first love for Christ, first love for the church, first love for the church, whatever it may be. And then how that all also kind of bounces back to us. So if you found yourself maybe having lost your first excitement, your first joy or passion to be here tonight or be in the, current, or to be in the church altogether or be serving for Christ, then maybe you need to surround yourself with some people. Maybe we need to surround ourselves or challenge ourselves to get back to that and to, to ask ourselves maybe what deeds we've dropped off as well. You know, I've kind of already targeted this next question a little bit, but just in case there's more to be added to it, the, the question that I kind of want to try to answer every week is, is how might we be like the church in Ephesus? And for me, what stands out is, you know, when you're, when you're traveling and you've you got to find a church to, that you're going to worship with on, on a Sunday, don't you have a tendency to get on their website? You, you want to see what you're getting yourself into if you go to that congregation. Maybe you go read their statement of beliefs to make sure that they uh, have the correct theology, the correct doctrinal positions. And then you might go look at their list of ministries to see if anything's out of the ordinary, to see if the activities in which they engage are, are similar to the ones that our congregation engages. You, know, you do your little bit, of, you do your research to make sure you're, you're not going to step into a place that is uh, teaching something incorrectly or doing something incorrectly. See, if you'd done that with Ephesus, if they had a website and you were able to look at their statement of beliefs and their list of ministries, it would have checked all the boxes for you. You would have been like, that's where I'm going to worship on Sunday while I'm in Asia Minor. That's the church I want to go to. Because we gauge success differently than maybe the Lord gauges it. We, we, we gauge what makes a church healthy a little differently than the Lord gauges it. And so we would look at them as a great congregation because, as Jay alluded to early on, we're looking at the outside. And maybe we're not looking more closely at the motivation, at their intent, at their objectives. And it makes me wonder about this congregation sometimes. Because if people go to our website 
And they can look at a statement of beliefs or a list of ministries. They can pull up sermons presented by any one of us. And I believe they're going to walk away going, that's a sound congregation. But would we pass the first love test? That's the real question. Would we pass the first love test? You know, when Jay brought up Go and Do a moment ago when, when uh, the three of us in Mingu came up with the concept of Go and Do a couple years ago at a minister's retreat. The goal behind it was to reignite as a congregation our desire to serve our community our desire to be, as Ben will always say from the pulpit, the hands and feet of Jesus. Because we were kind of afraid we had lost the love for that. Would we pass the first love test? I don't really want to answer that for us. I want you to take that question with you as a congregation and as an individual. Because we, we know we'd pass the soundness test. The other one's a little more challenging. I think the question being, you know, they see it on the website and they know that this is a sound congregation, but what happens when they get here? How are they met when they get here? When they become a member, when they go through trials, when they go through struggles, when they mess up, when they make mistakes, how are they treated then? Are they cast aside? Are they uh, lessened? Are they uh, given a scarlet letter? whatever the case might be, or, or are they taken in and loved and counseled and, and, and helped and given all the necessary things that they need to get back on track? And just like Kyle was saying, you know, there's probably people here tonight that are thinking, mm-hmm, yeah, that's right. But instead of thinking about the church at large, maybe for you, if, if you're one of those <coughs> things, if, <laughs> His mic works tonight. All right, so if, if, if you're one of those people that are thinking, yeah, that's right, I hope they're listening, well, maybe think about yourself. Think about what kind of love you've been showing. What kind of love you have been displaying. Have you been showing love the way you want others to show love? Or are you just focused on how everybody else ain't loving everybody but I can hate all day. I can hate whoever, however, however long I want to hate. As long as they're the, the elders or the deacons or whoever or the ministers are, are, love, are, are, are not doing what they should do, that's what I want to focus on. So the question tonight being, what kind of love do you display? What kind of love do I display to these people that I come in contact with every day of my life? And what kind of commendation or criticism based on that love would I receive from Jesus himself? Because the truth is, we may not get a letter in the mail from Jesus, but he's going to let us know how we did one day. Anything to add, Jay? Okay. One final question as we bring this to close. What's your one big takeaway from the letter to the church in Ephesus? I think one thing I could just add to the stuff that's already been said, uh, I mean, the first, leaving the first love comment, we could chew on that for another whole series. Um, I think it's admirable that this congregation had lost their first love 
yet was still commendable for so much. Because a lot of times when you, when you do lose that, it's so hard not to say that love and feeling. When you do love, <laughs> when you do lose that first love, you just fade away. It grows cold and it, and it stops, right? And so they were so focused on not tolerating evil that even though they had lost some of the emotion, they were still showing up and showing out in, in, in a big way. So I think I'm going to take away a lot from that tonight is just the fact that that's just how much not being able to tolerate evil in your life can do for you. That even when you do wake up on a Sunday or even when you do don't want to you know, fill in the blank that action in your Christianity, if you're that unwilling to let unrighteousness settle in your life, maybe you don't have the emotion that time in your life, maybe you don't have that just burning desire to, to, to be at a Sunday night, but that, that cornerstone of I will be right, and I think can still carry a long way as you work on joining back up to that first love. I think what Jesus says to the Pharisees applies to uh, the church in Ephesus. Um, it's very easy to just say, oh, you're pharisaical. And I'm not trying to say that church in Ephesus was pharisaical, but they did have the truth down. They had, they had the knowledge. They had the words. They had all the right look. They looked like they had it all together, but inwardly, what were they? Jesus called them whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23. And so the big takeaway that I'm taking tonight is, what has been Hogan on the inside? And I hope everyone asks that questions of themselves tonight, because there are some of us that really need to work on the outside. We really need to work on our knowledge of God's Word. Some of us would not get commended for our knowledge of God's Word and our ability to stand for it and our ability to uh, tell others about it and our willingness to do that. Some of us wouldn't get that commendation. Some of us wouldn't get the criticism that the church in Ephesus got. And so wherever you are in the pews tonight or online listening, you have to ask yourself the question, have I struck the right balance with my love? Have I struck the right balance between spirit and in truth? What part of my soul and my life and my attitude and my heart and, 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 and the way I live my life, what part needs to change? Because wherever you find yourself on this balance, on this, on this scale, realize what Jesus said was going to happen if they didn't change. What did he say? I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. What he's saying is, I will come and you will no longer be able to be called righteous, to be called the church, to be a part of the called out, to be a part of the assembly of God that I am the head of, Jesus says. I'm coming to you quickly if you don't stop. So, for all of us tonight, I think my final thing to say is the same thing as Jesus said, remember from where you have fallen. Wherever you have fallen from, whether it be truth, or whether it be love, remember that and aspire to go back to where you once were. My one big takeaway is the fact that despite the, the pretty harsh criticism this congregation received, and, and they are one of the uh, churches that receives the harshest criticism of these seven, 
Jesus still gave them the opportunity to change. You can see it right there in verse 5. Repent and do the works you did at first. Even though this congregation had its problems, Jesus was still open to letting them turn things around. And maybe that's where you're at tonight. Maybe as we study this or you examine your own life or, or, or you face difficulties and, and challenges, maybe you realize that you need to turn things around. In the four, this uh, roundtable format, we don't always offer a, an invitation like we do at the close of a sermon, but we want you to know that invitation is always available. And if you have any need to, uh, to repent, to change, to become a child of God, we'll gladly help you with that. Just don't hesitate to see one of us or one of the elders. Let's close out with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the seven letters to the seven churches, that we can have this avenue to look back on, on uh, your words for these congregations. Help us, Lord, to, to uh, examine these, these, uh, these letters over the next few weeks and to gain from that study, to uh, appreciate these congregations, to uh, appreciate what you see in these congregations, and help us to apply that to ourselves and our church. And Lord, um, we see that you, you give this opportunity uh, for people to repent. If, if, that, if that's what we need to do, help us, not to, help us to not hesitate to do so. And Lord, as we go through this week, help us to represent you in spirit and in truth with everyone we come in contact with. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.